0: My wife and I have been waking up around 5.30, 5.45 to get ready for work. And what we've learned is that on the weekends, our dogs don't realize that we're not on that schedule anymore. So while we don't set our alarms for 5.30, 5.45, our dogs have their own internal alarm clock that tells them that they need to be up at that time. Now I'd written this illustration out on like Thursday or Friday, But this last weekend, they demonstrated it once again. It was about 5.30. There was no sound. There was no alarm clock that went off. But Pepper decided that she needed to go outside and start her day. And Pepper's a dog where once she's up, everybody else in the house has to be up, whether you want to be or not. And so when Pepper decides she needs to get up, Mac, my other dog, decides he needs to be up as well. And the problem is when Mac goes outside early in the morning, He thinks he hears something. Now, there is nothing going on outside. There is no one moving. There's nothing even in the distance. But if Mac thinks he hears something, he barks and he barks and he barks. And then when Mac barks, Pepper barks as well. And so you have this shouting match between the two dogs that I'm sure is waking up the rest of the neighborhood. And my wife and I say, it looks like it's just time to be up because the dogs have gotten up. They don't like it when things don't go according to their routine. So on that note, we have two dogs for sale. If you're interested, (laughs) they're really great. They're well-trained and uh, they're very obedient. So see me after the service if you're interested. As we enter our text today, we talked last week about Habakkuk having questions and being confused because he cannot understand the plan of God. And we see this confusion from Habakkuk. Not because he doesn't believe in the attributes of God. It's not because he doesn't think that God is powerful or loving or faithful or kind. He knows those things are true about God. But yet the way God is revealing himself is not what Habakkuk would expect. We see this in our day today as well. It's not confusing to us that the world is evil. If you want proof that the world is evil... You can just watch the news. You can just talk to people in the community. You can listen to people's stories, and you will find that the world is generally evil. So Habakkuk knows that the world is evil, and that's not what I think he's confused about. Many people say that Habakkuk is wrestling with the problem of evil, and we'll talk about that, but I don't even think he's upset because the world is evil. But I would submit to you this morning that Habakkuk is confused... Because Israel had gotten into a routine with God, and that routine is about to change. Just like my dogs, when they get out of their routine, they get upset and they start barking. Israel was about to get out of their routine with the Lord. And what do I mean by this? If you studied the Old Testament, especially the historical books, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you're going to see a pattern or a professor of mine would call them a cycle of something. And what is that? Well, you have Israel. They are God's covenant people. God is their God. And as long as they're faithful to him, he will be their God. They will be his people. He gave them his law to obey and to follow. And as long as they are keeping the law, as long as they are following him faithfully, God is going to protect them and help them. Now, what Israel will do is they will fall into times of disobedience. They'll sin against God. That sin will bring violence. It'll bring destruction. They'll have idolatry. They'll worship other gods as well. So we see this happen over and over and over again. And when that happens, what does God do? He stops protecting them. And we see the Philistines or we see other nations around Israel start attacking them, taking them into captivity, oppressing them they lose a battle they are taken the ark of the covenant at one point is taken by the philistines and that happens until what they repent they say they're sorry they confess their sins to god he saves them and so you see this pattern over and over again they know god they sin they fall into captivity god saves them there's covenant people again And that is going on over and over and over again until the book of Habakkuk, or at least this time period. And in this time period, Habakkuk is saying, wait a second, I see the world, I see how evil it is, but God doesn't look like he's doing anything yet. I can't see God working. And so, as we read these first 11 verses of Habakkuk, we're going to see what Habakkuk has to say and what God has to say to Habakkuk. Ask yourself this question. What is God's answer to Habakkuk's problem? Habakkuk's going to list out his problem in these first four verses we're going to look at. How does God respond to Habakkuk's problem? And sometimes God does not respond in ways that we expect. I had a professor, a non-Christian secular professor from a community college that I took Speech 101 at. And he told me then that disappointment comes from unmet expectations. Oftentimes frustration, disappointment comes when we have expectations and they're not met. And sometimes we have expectations for God, they may not be fair, and he does not meet them, or at least we don't think that he has met them. We have different types of suffering, and we're going to talk about this not only in the book of Habakkuk, but in later series as well. And not everyone's suffering is the same. Not everyone goes through the same thing in their life. And for some people, what you think may not be as severe or as devastating, still could be very real, and important to them, and we should never minimize suffering in someone else's life. And as we look at suffering this morning, and how does God respond to suffering, we're going to ask ourselves this question, does God see my suffering? Does God see my suffering? And the answer, of course, is yes. Just because we know that the answer is yes, doesn't always mean we feel like he sees our suffering. It doesn't always mean we're content when he sees our suffering. And it doesn't mean that he causes our suffering to stop. We all have different suffering in life. It's not equal to one another. It may not be the same. One of the best things someone has told me when I've been going through hard times is that they don't understand completely what I'm going through. But that they're praying for me, that they're loving on me. And that has been an encouragement. God sees our suffering. He sees the dysfunction in our family. How many of you would say that you come from a dysfunctional family? I've learned that everybody, at some point, one way or another, has a dysfunctional family. Some of that dysfunction may just be funny. Like some of the dysfunction in my family I think is funny, and my wife thinks it's funny as well as I try to explain to her that. Some dysfunction is serious and it's devastating and it's harmful, and we don't want to minimize that. God sees our suffering in the workplace, an unjust boss or a co-worker that just really doesn't like you or makes it their mission to put you down. God sees suffering in a broken marriage or a marriage that isn't what it used to be. He sees suffering in rebellious children, children that have walked away from the faith. He sees grief. He sees depression. He sees anxiety. It's not that God doesn't see our suffering. The question then becomes, if God sees our suffering, why isn't he doing anything about it? So we're going to look at two aspects of suffering this morning from these verses. We first want to see suffering lamented, and it's going to be on the screen for you. Suffering lamented, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Let's look at verse 1 of Habakkuk chapter 1, and we don't want to miss this. It says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now what is an oracle? Well, it could mean a message, a prophecy, or it could be translated burden. Some of your translations might even say that, the burden which Habakkuk saw. It's a message from God, but by Habakkuk using this word, there's an amount of heaviness to it. It's burdensome, it's weighing him down. Now ask yourself this question, and we're not going to necessarily answer it right now. What is the oracle that Habakkuk saw? And if you read the Minor Prophets, or if you read just the prophetic books in general, if verse 1 says this is the message or this is the oracle, you would expect the rest of the verses to tell you what that message is. But as we look at verses 2 through 4, we don't see the message from God yet. We don't see God speaking. We see Habakkuk speaking as well. And this is what I think is confusing to some people about the book of Habakkuk. Most prophetic books, when it says this is the message that God gave to Habakkuk, you would expect God to speak, right? But God isn't the one speaking in verses two through four. This is Habakkuk speaking. And so what makes Habakkuk such a compelling book for us to study is that it doesn't just tell us the message from God. I would say that all of us who have been in church, all of us who read the Bible, Can pretty well sum up what it is that God has said to us, what it is that God wants us to do. We know what the gospel is, we know how God wants us to live. But what's interesting about Habakkuk is he doesn't just tell us what God has told us to do, but he shows us his response to the message of the Lord. And honestly, Habakkuk struggles with what God has to say. So look with me at verse 2. We're going to see Habakkuk. Lamenting his suffering here in chapter one. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? He starts with the word O Lord, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. If you think about that word, it goes back to the book of Exodus. It's God's covenant-keeping nature. What happened in Exodus where God calls himself Yahweh or I am? Well, he speaks to Moses. God's people have been in slavery. He saves them from slavery through all these plagues that happen. He parts the Red Sea and he delivers them to the promised land. So when a Hebrew, when a Jew would read that verse, they would immediately think back to God's work in the Exodus. And remember, Christ hasn't come at this point. He's not died on the cross. So for Jewish people, this was the ultimate picture of salvation in their minds So we don't want to make too much of this, but I just want to say, even as Habakkuk uses the name Yahweh, he already has this picture of God that is faithful, that saves, that loves us, that protects us. But notice what he says. He says, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Habakkuk is asking God for help. He says, I know you hear me. I know that I'm asking you for help. But yet, it's like God is not listening. The beginning of Habakkuk starts out like a psalm of lament. And that's our first point, suffering lamented. What does it mean to lament something? What means to have grief? It means to be discouraged. It means to express emotion or even frustration. He's engaging in laments. Over the message or even the lack of message from the Lord. And we'll talk more about lament here in a moment. But he says, how long am I going to cry out to you for help and you will not hear? It's not that God can't hear Habakkuk, but it's like he's not listening to what Habakkuk is saying. Look go to what else he says. He says, how long will I cry to you violence and you will not save So Habakkuk is not only asking God for help, but he's saying, look, I see violence. That word means wickedness or social violence. He was seeing, I think, physical violence, but he's also referring to the violence that was part of the Jewish society at this point. Now, I mentioned a little bit about the historical background of Habakkuk last week, but I want to give you a picture of what life was like for this prophet. Turn to the book of Jeremiah for a moment. We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 26. Jeremiah was a contemporary prophet. That means they were around during the same time, and they even have similar messages if you read the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a much larger book than Habakkuk. That's why he's a major prophet, and Habakkuk is a minor prophet. Now, when we look at Jeremiah chapter 26, look at verse 20 with me of that chapter. It says, there is another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, from Kirath-Jerim. He prophesied against the city and against this land in the words like those of Jeremiah. So who is this guy? He's a contemporary prophet of Jeremiah and of Habakkuk. And he had a similar message to Jeremiah and Habakkuk as well. And notice what happened in verse 21 when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled out and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Eliznan, the son of Achabor, and others with him, and they took Uriah from Egypt, brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword, and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. So a contemporary prophet, someone who had the same message as Jeremiah and Habakkuk, is preaching. He's doing what God has told him to do. And what does the king do? He chases him down. He kills him. And then he just leaves his body in this burial place. This is just an example of the type of social violence that was happening. Part of why Habakkuk's day and age was so I guess, frightening to be part of was not just that there was violence, but there was violence from the top down. It wasn't just the people. It was the king. It wasn't just the king. It was the priests and it was false prophets and it was the officials. There was social violence in every aspect of the society. And so Habakkuk says, I see this violence. I'm observing it and you will not save. Did God save Uriah? No, Uriah died. He was put to death by the king. This is flagrant injustice, extreme brutality. These people have a lack of regard for the law. The fabric of moral society was breaking down. So this is Habakkuk's complaint to the Lord. He says, I'm crying out to help for help. I'm asking you to assist me, but I'm not hearing anything. Have You ever been in a situation where you've had to ask for help? When I was in college, I was a residential advisor. One of my jobs was to make sure the dormitory was clean. Now there were about 50 to 60 college-age young men on my floor, and they just did not care about cleanliness at all in the dormitory. And so we had different jobs and responsibilities that they would have And for whatever reason, the trash was not taken out one day. It was the middle of the day. It was the middle of winter. It was really icy out. And I knew that there were some students touring our campus, and they'd be walking through the lobby, and there's just trash piled up everywhere. So I went, I picked up the trash, I bagged it up, I tied it, I went outside to where it's all icy and yucky, and Iowa just has terrible winters there. It gets really icy. The wind is terrible. And this was the worst winter that they'd had in years. I mean, a decade at least. It was very bad. So I went out. I threw the trash away. As I turned back, my body went one way and my knee turned another way. And I fell onto the ground. I'd already fallen like seven times that winter. But this was the time that my knee decided that it was going to go the other way. And if you don't know this, I've had knee surgery before. My knee is weak anyways. Now, the problem was I would forgot my phone inside, and it was the middle of winter. It's very cold outside. I was about 50 feet from the dormitory, and everyone is in class or at work. There's no one out there. And so I tried to get up, and I kept falling down, and it was just hurting more to try to get up. So I did the only thing that I knew how to do. I started yelling just at the top of my lungs, help, help. And I saw a student 100 feet, 150 feet away, getting into his car. And I tried to track him down. I yelled, help. And to this day, I think he saw me. But I think he decided that I was too heavy to try to carry inside. So he was just going to pretend like he couldn't see me. And he drove away. Finally, my assistant RA saw me. He realized that he couldn't get away, that he knew that I'd saw him and he had saw me. And he helped kind of carry me back into the dormitory where I was safe and able to recover a little bit. Scary when you're in that situation and you're crying out for help. You're asking someone to help you when you're in trouble. And it's like no one can hear you. You feel like you're there by yourself. And this is what Habakkuk is doing in the first couple verses. Notice verse 3. He says, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? In this verse is assumed the sovereignty, and the omnipresence of God. Habakkuk says, I know you're the one who's put me in this situation. I know that you are sovereign. I know that you have control over everything. You are the reason that I'm seeing this iniquity. I can't get away from it. You've put me in this time period, in this nation where there is this evil, and yet I see it and there's nothing I can do about it. But Habakkuk says, I know you can see it as well, but you look idly at it. What does that mean? God looks at it, but he's not doing anything about it. Does God see my suffering? I think we can all say yes. But sometimes, even when we know God sees our suffering, it doesn't feel like God is doing anything with it. So this is Habakkuk's question. Why am I looking at this evil? And I know you see it as well but you're not doing anything. He describes some of this wickedness. He says, destruction and violence are before me. Physical destruction, yes, but also social destruction as well. Judah had been through an interesting time period. They'd had King Manasseh several decades before. He was a wicked king in the sight of the Lord, and he was evil, and he followed idols but then after him was his son, King Josiah. And King Josiah brought reform. He found the book of Deuteronomy. He established a spiritual revival in Judah, which brought them back to being in favor with the Lord. So Habakkuk can remember back to the spiritual place they were at as a nation. But then when his son, King Jehoiakim, came, Habakkuk is starting to see the degradation and the destruction of this society. He says, I see destruction. I see rampant violence here. In verse four, well, actually the the end of verse three, strife and contention arise. So there's not only destruction and violence, but there's fighting and there's warring. If you've ever been around two people who are fighting or, you know, aren't on good terms, there is just tension that you can almost cut with a knife. And it makes everything awkward. No one wants to be in that situation. You just want to get as far away from them as you can. And Habakkuk says, there is fighting, there is violence, there is tension everywhere that I go. I can't escape it. We look at verse 4 now. and We see what I think is both some of the reason for this, but also a result of why this is happening. Habakkuk says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. What does it mean that the law is paralyzed? Other translations or another way you could say that word paralyzed is to say that the law has gone cold. The law is not hot anymore. If you think about revival, what does that mean? To fan into flame for something to be hot, to be ready. But if it goes cold, it's not useful anymore. It's not effective So Habakkuk says this is what's happening with the law. Because the law is going paralyzed, it's growing cold, it's not effective. Now, what was the purpose of the law? Well, it showed them how they should live as a society. We know ultimately the law shows us our sin and a need for the Savior. But the Jewish law, they had no regard for. They didn't follow it. They didn't use it in their lives. So because of this, it led to more wickedness and violence and the more they were wicked and violent and corrupt the more it led to the law being paralyzed have you ever been somewhere where there's rules and you know there's expectations but no one is following them when i was working for the ymca i went and i subbed at a site one time and at the after school programs they have you have a certain amount of regulations you're supposed to follow one of them is you do a fire drill every month And you do this so that if there ever is a fire, the kids know where they're supposed to go. Well, for whatever reason, the site I was at had never done a fire drill all year with the kids being there, which they might have thought wasn't a big deal, except for that day, one of the vents was smoking in the room and no one knew where they were supposed to go. It was a madhouse trying to get people out the door where they needed to go because no one had been following the rules. You realize that the rules are there. For when something bad happens, or to keep everyone in line. The law was growing cold, and it's compounding on itself. Because they are wicked, they're not following the law. Because they're not following the law, they're becoming more wicked. So he says, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. Not just a social idea of justice, but also just righteousness as well is another way you could translate this word. Now, as we look at these last two phrases, I think we see how Habakkuk is feeling in this situation. He says, for the wicked surround the righteous. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're the only one doing right? Like everyone around you is doing evil. This is how Habakkuk feels. He knows there's other people that are righteous, but he feels like there's so many more wicked people everywhere around him. And he says, so justice goes forth perverted. Maybe those wicked people had a sense of justice, but their idea of justice is perverted. It is not what God has in mind. You know, we hear a lot of talk about justice in our society today. We hear people say that they're fighting for justice, but if we look closer at what they're talking about, it is a perverted justice. It is not a justice based on God's word or his values. But it is a justice that is self-seeking. There's many similarities to what Habakkuk says about his time period and what we can say about our time period as well. If you don't believe me, watch the news. There's so much violence and destruction. There's corruption. All these things that are happening around us. And Habakkuk expresses laments. To lament, you can literally translate it. It means to wail or to cry out to express deep regret, grief, or sorrow. And lament is a theme throughout Scripture. You have the book of Lamentations. What does that mean? Jeremiah writes this book after Jerusalem has been destroyed, and he is wailing. He is sorrowful. He has regrets. He's crying out to God. We have prayers of lament in Scripture where we pray for our grief and sorrow, our confusions, and our questions. And let me just say this morning, it is not wrong to lament to God. Now, I don't think our lament should turn into complaining, and there can sometimes be a fine line between those two. But we see examples of lament throughout Scripture. In Psalm 130, David says, Out of the depths I cry to you. In Psalm 6.3, he says, My soul cries out and is greatly troubled. In verse 12, he says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, and the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak. The Psalms are filled with laments. Martin Luther loves the Psalms of lament. He says, where do you find deeper, more sorrowful, more pitiful words of sadness than the Psalms of lamentation? There again, you look into the hearts of saints as into death, as into hell itself. When they speak of fear and hope, they use such words that no painter could so depict for your fear of hope and no Cicero or other orator has portrayed to them, and that they speak these words to God and with God, this, I repeat, is the best thing of all. This gives the words of double earnestness and life. The Psalms teach us how to lament. We see lamentation or this idea of lament in the Gospels as well. Mary and Martha lamented over the death of their brother Lazarus. But someone else lamented as well. Do you remember that story? Jesus, and what is the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. It's okay to express lament to God, but our lament should not just be complaining, but it should always turn to trust. One of my favorite psalms of lament is Psalm 13. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever. That's not an encouraging way to start out a psalm, but by the time you get to the end of the psalm, it says what? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. We'll see this in Habakkuk as well. He has questions. He pours out his heart to God, but by the end of the book, he is trusting in God as his strength. Now, as we look at suffering lamented as we look at Habakkuk's questions for the Lord we want to ask ourselves now how does God respond to Habakkuk what is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw and let's look now at verses 5 through 11 and I don't think we see suffering answered but rather I think we see suffering compounded Look at verse 5 with me and ask yourself this question. Is Is God answering the questions of Habakkuk? He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Have you ever wondered why it doesn't say there, then the Lord answered Habakkuk or then God said to Habakkuk. How long do you think it would take us to even realize that God is talking if it wasn't for our subheadings that says the Lord's answer or God's response? Now, I do think it's God speaking here. I don't want you to think that it's not God speaking. That is clear from the rest of what he has to say. But is this God answering Habakkuk? I would submit to you this morning that I don't think this is God's answer, but rather go back to verse 1. I think this is the message or the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. And let me set the picture for you. Habakkuk in verses 2 through 4, he has these questions for God. How long am I going to cry out to you for help and you won't answer? Why do you make me see iniquity and evil? Why is the law paralyzed? And God speaks to Habakkuk and Habakkuk says, here's my answer. Here's what God's going to say. And God doesn't answer Habakkuk's question But rather, he gives him this message to give to Israel. And God says, look at what I'm doing among the nations. It's interesting the words that God uses there. It says, look among the nations, see, wonder, and be astounded. Those words, look and see, are the same words that Habakkuk has used earlier. And I think it shows us this. That in our human mortal flesh, we can only see so much of what's going on. We can only see things from our point of view. But God says to Habakkuk, you're not really looking. You're not really seeing. You're not really taking in the whole picture. I think we have a picture to illustrate this on our slideshow. Hopefully we can see it okay. Now, when you first look at that picture, what do you see? I see a sycamore tree or a tree that looks like a sycamore tree. If you look closer, what else do we see? We see a gorilla staring into the eyes of a lion. I have no way to make that more clear if anyone can't see that. But hopefully, if you look at it long enough, you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, this isn't a therapy session. I'm not going to have you look at different drawings and say, hey, what does this remind you of in your childhood? But it's an optical illusion. It shows us that sometimes when we look at something, we don't see the whole picture. My wife gets on me because she'll say something to me. And for some reason, I'll hear something completely different. And I'll say, did you say da 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 da, da. And it's not anything like what she has just told me. And Habakkuk, as he looks at his situation, he says, I see violence, destruction, harm, wickedness, and I don't see you doing anything. Back out of the situation for a moment. Look at what God says. And God says, you're not seeing the whole picture. You're not looking at what I'm actually doing in this situation. And as we read that, we think, okay, God's going to tell Habakkuk what he's going to do. He's going to save them. He's going to respond to them. And that's not what God says. That's not what God says. Look at verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Let me summarize what God's message is to Habakkuk before we break it down even further. Habakkuk says, I see wickedness. I see violence, social corruption in Judah. And God says, hey, if you think that's bad, look at what I'm doing with the Babylonians. They are awful. They are wicked. They are pagan. They seek after their own selves. They're prideful and they're coming and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to take your people into captivity. Does that encourage anyone? Does that make anyone feel better about their situation? No. And we see Habakkuk further respond to the Lord. And we'll see this in next week's sermon. And he says, I know you're good. I know that you're present. I know that you're powerful, but I have no idea why you're doing this. So I would submit to you this, that Habakkuk is quoting God's message to him in verses five through 11, not as God's response, but rather at his frustration from the message he received from the Lord. Habakkuk says, I was already frustrated and then God spoke to me and I was even more frustrated because I don't understand what he's doing. God would use the nation of Babylon to judge Judah but they were far more wicked than the Jews and I don't want us to miss that. Some people as they read Habakkuk they say well Babylon was wicked yes but the Jews had it coming. No Babylon was a wicked vile nation and God would eventually judge them for their sin. There is not this comparative justice going on in Habakkuk. But there is God who is at work. And as he is at work, he has one nation, Judah, who would be judged and eventually destroyed, or at least physically, there would be a remnant, yes. And then there's Babylon, who eventually would be destroyed as well. He says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're also called the Babylonians. This international landscape is taking place, and Habakkuk could see it. He knew these things were happening, but he didn't know how it would apply to him. What was going on historically? Well, during this time, there had been the Assyrian nation. If you've read the book of Jonah, the city of Nineveh, that was all associated with Assyria. And they were wicked. They were evil, but yet... They did not last forever. If you read the book of Nahum, God brings justice to Nineveh for their sin. Jonah went to Nineveh. He said, you need to repent in 40 days. They did until they didn't. Eventually, they fell back into even more wickedness, and they were destroyed. Who were they destroyed by? The empire of Babylon. They were defeated at the Battle of Carchemish. Nineveh was eventually destroyed, and the Babylonians were swiftly moving towards capturing the entire region. Look at some of these ways they're described here by God. And ask yourself, how afraid, how frustrated would you be at knowing this is coming? First of all, we see their pride in verse 7. He says, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth for themselves. They inspired fear into the hearts of those that they captured. They had their own sense of justice, their own sense of dignity. They were prideful. They knew they were powerful. They knew they were wicked. And they knew that they could do whatever they wanted to. In verse 8, notice their speed. It says their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horses march proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. You might say, why are they talking so much about horses? Well, it wasn't just talking about their horses, but their chariots as well. And having chariots in the Old Testament was an important and strategic advantage. They could move Quickly. And if you study history, and you can look this up on your own time, if you look at the rise of the Babylonian Empire, it was very quick. It happened very fast. Nebuchadnezzar, who's in Daniel, as he is leading them into battle, he made sure these soldiers were quick. They would not just rest after a battle, they'd go into the next battle as well. They were very fast. It was very quick how they took over the entire region. Habakkuk may have heard they were rising to power, but he could not see how they were coming for Judah. And God is showing him this. We see their immorality in verse 9. They come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. They were God's chosen instrument for destruction on the nation of Judah. They were violence Now Habakkuk's saying, God, I'm frustrated because the nation of Judah is violent. Babylon was even more violent than Judah was. And they would be violent in how they took over the city as well. They were violent. It says they come with their faces forward. I think this refers to the swiftness of them as well. You could also translate that. They come like the wind. And it says they gather captives like the sand. They didn't just destroy, but if you read some of the prophetic books like Daniel, they took people into captivity as well. They took Daniel and his friends. In verses 10 and 11, let's see their idolatry. It says, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. We see a sense of pride here. Because they say there's no king that can stop us. All the kings, all the rulers that went up against them, they defeated. They say there's no fortress that can keep us out. Why is that? One of the things the Babylonians would do, if you had a fortress with high walls, they wouldn't just try to break down the walls. They would build a pretty much dirt ramp up the walls so they could come over and into the city. So with that strategy, there was no city that could keep them out. And yet we also see their idolatry. It says they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose might is their own God. These Babylonians weren't righteous people, but they were wicked, and immoral people. And their idolatry was not just a statue or a false god, but their idolatry was their own strength they had self-reliance they're confident in themselves remember the book of Daniel there's so many different stories that could apply to this but Daniel chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar who has this pride he has all of this accomplishments and yet God forces him to walk like an animal forces him to eat the grass of the earth humiliating him. And that is Nebuchadnezzar writing in Daniel chapter 4, telling his story about how God humbled him. And he says at the end, now I see that there is no other God besides the God of the Jews. The Babylonians were idolatrous, but it wasn't just in physical idols. It was in their own strength as well. Like I said, I don't think this would be encouraging for Habakkuk to hear but it would even be more frustrating. Habakkuk says at least there's still people here that worship Yahweh. These people worship themselves. We can grow frustrated as well. We see people prospering in life who obviously don't know the Lord. We see people that are selfish, that are prideful, that depend on themselves. And yet God doesn't seem to be doing anything to them. Yet I would encourage us to go back to verse 5. To what God says to Habakkuk when he says, look. Sometimes we see things from our perspective and we can only see so much. Habakkuk at this point doesn't see the whole picture. But God says, look, you can't understand what's going on yet. I remember the book of Job, which is such a great addition to our thoughts on suffering. As Job has lost everything He spends chapter after chapter in the book pouring out his grief to God, debating with his friends. And when God finally answers Job, what does he say? He doesn't give him the answer he thought he would get. He doesn't say, hey, Job, this is why you lost everything. But rather, he says, where were you when I made the world? Oh, that's right. You weren't born yet. You weren't here. And it reminds us of this, that we can have questions for God. We can lament and cry out to God. but We should never think that we know best. We should never think that our plans are better than his. We should always trust in his plan and in his character. We see here the suffering of Habakkuk is being compounded. It's adding to his frustration. We also see that God is not bound by the expectations of man. So it's not an encouraging place necessarily to leave us. But going into next week, we'll see Habakkuk ask God further questions and then God show Habakkuk how he should live. We leave him in a bit of a down spot at this point. but We remember that Habakkuk can express his lament and grief to the Lord and eventually trust in him. So, in conclusion, does God see our suffering? We've known the answer is yes. Does God always do what we want Him to do with our suffering? And sometimes the answer is no. So, what can we do when we feel like God isn't doing anything about our suffering? I would encourage you this morning to lament, not to complain, not to be sinfully angry. But to lament, if you have suffering, if you have questions, you can bring those to God and cry out to him. Sometimes I think we're afraid that God isn't going to know the answer to our questions. Well, God made everything. He's much wiser than we are. He may not give us the answer, but we can lament to him. How can we lament? First of all, we make God the focus of, of our prayers how can i lament by making god the focus of my prayers all those psalms of lament that i mentioned earlier so we see habakkuk lamenting before the lord they don't say that the person i'm crying out to is my family is my wife is my coworker, but the person we're crying out to is god habakkuk says "O oh lord How long will I cry for help? Sometimes we go to everyone with our issues, with our problems, but we never go to God. Sometimes when we're really frustrated, we can take that frustration out on other people, on other circumstances. We say, my life would be so much better if it wasn't for this person, this family member, this co-worker, this church, this organization, this physical issue. In my life, if I just had this, or if I didn't have this. But who's the person we're really blaming? It's God. God gave you the parents you're supposed to have. God put you in the situation that you're living in currently. God gave you everything you need in this situation to be content. What did Paul say when he was in prison? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not meaning he can do whatever he wants, but he says, I can be content in every situation. We can lament by making God the focus of our prayers. Cry out to him, address him. Secondly, how can I lament? By expressing my concerns and emotions to him. It's not like he doesn't know what they are, he knows us, he knows our thoughts. He knows our questions. He knows the doubts that you have that you would never think of telling anyone about. He knows the questions that you don't even want to think about. He knows them already. You can express your concerns and emotions to him. Habakkuk does. And for that, I think he is a bold and great example of how we can address the Lord. As I said earlier, there's a fine line between... Expressing and complaining. We shouldn't be afraid that God can't handle our questions. Thirdly, we can ask God to intervene. Ask the Lord to intervene. He's sovereign. He's the one that has the power to intervene. This doesn't mean that he has to. This doesn't mean that he has to do what we want him to. It's not a genie in a bottle. We can ask the Lord to intervene. Part of Habakkuk's prayer is not only telling God what's going on, but he wants God to act. Finally, we can trust God regardless of the outcome. Whether he answers our prayer in the way we want him to or not, sometimes we just don't know why it is God has allowed us to suffer like we have. We can trust him. Lamenting, lamentation should never turn into disbelief. It should always lead us to trust. We see this with Habakkuk two times. The first is in chapter 2, verse 1. After he expresses his questions to God again, he says, I will go to my watch post. I'll station myself on the tower to look and see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaints. He says, I have these questions, but I'm going to trust God. And wait for him and his answer. Then as I mentioned last week at the end of the book. He says, God the Lord is my strength. And he trusts in the Lord. Regardless of the outcome. We see God work in this passage. In an unexpected way. In a way that went against what the routine was in Judah. But yet we also see. That as we lament and we turn to the Lord, we can trust in him. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the rest of our service. Father God, we thank you for the book of Habakkuk. We thank you for the encouragement that we can find from it. Sometimes, Lord, even as we suffer, it is encouraging just to know that other people have suffered as well. Other people have wrestled with the same questions. Other people have had the same doubts. But also that other people have trusted in you and found you faithful. So help us to do that this morning, Lord. God, we know that you see our suffering. Help us to see your goodness, your love for us, and to remember that in hard times. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.